Uh, we're five weeks into a series uh, we've called The Greatest Reset. And the reason we're doing this series is because there seems to be widespread agreement among people living all over the world from all kinds of backgrounds and living in all kinds of conditions that this world is not as it should be uh, and not as it could be and perhaps is in need of some kind of reset. Uh, the economy is out of control. Corporate greed is out of control. Politicians are out of control. Crime, the climate, racism, inequality, injustice are all out of control, or at least uh, that is the perception. So somebody, somewhere, needs to press some kind of reset button. This seems to be the pervading sentiment around the world today. And there seems to be no shortage of people who are eager and willing to press the reset button, whatever that looks like. And in fact, as I've mentioned earlier in this series, the World Economic Forum actually chose as the title for their 50th annual convention in 2020, they chose the Great Reset as the title. That was their theme. But discerning people know and understand that the reason the world is broken is because we are broken. And in reality, there is no, you know, reset button like what you might find on a computer or some other electronic device that will fix this. There is no button that will fix us and reformat all of our past sins and mistakes and take us back to some original brand new state. Our sins and mistakes, both personally and collectively, have consequences. And we continue to make these sins and mistakes. And in most cases, these consequences are irreversible. The, the vast majority of the time, you cannot go back and undo something that you did. I was told a story as a young Catholic boy um, about a girl who had gossiped about her friend, spreading hurtful things about her that she was not even sure were true. As a result, her friend began to be excluded and, and ridiculed, and the girl who had spread the gossip began to feel bad about it. And so she went to confessional, as Catholics do, we you know, go to confessional, and, and she confessed her gossiping to the priest. The priest said a prayer of absolution, which is, you know, if you grew up Catholic, you know all about this. They say prayer of absolution and extending forgiveness to her but he gave her an act of penance to do. The act of penance was to take her down pillow off of her bed, take her down pillow filled with goose feathers, go outside in mid-afternoon, open the pillow on the, on the time, at the time of day when the wind is blowing the hardest, open that pillow and just shake the feathers out and let the wind scatter the feathers. And once the wind has carried the feathers everywhere, she was then to go and collect each one of those feathers and put them back in the pillowcase. And of course, the girl said, that's an impossible task. Uh, it would take forever to do that. It's just impossible. And the priest said, that's right. That's right. You're forgiven. But you need to understand the harm that you have caused your friend through your gossip is also impossible to reverse. You see, our sins and mistakes have consequences, and not just for ourselves, but for everyone our life, our life touches. And of course, it's, that's not just true of gossip, but of sins of every kind. Most of the consequences are, of our sins and mistakes are irreversible. But here's what we've been coming back to every week, stressing throughout this series. 
that even though the consequences of the sins and mistakes of our past may be irreversible, they are not irredeemable. God can take the broken pieces of our lives and even of our world and piece them back together in such a way that it leaves it even more beautiful and more glorious than it was in the beginning, which is how we landed on the title, The Greatest Reset. Because when God does it, it's, it's far better, far more glorious than a reset that just hypothetically simply takes everything back to a previous state, you know, back to its factory settings, especially in light of the reality that such a reset really is impossible for us, both personally and collectively. Jesus and the New, other New Testament writers and even the Old Testament writers, they gave example after example of how God does this, how he redeems our broken past um, and, and, and takes it and makes it even into something even more beautiful and glorious than it was before. In fact, the scriptures as a whole are essentially a record of God's redemption of humanity. But for this series, we have settled on just one section of Scripture as our, as our template, the opening lines from Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, eight short verses that have come to be known as the Beatitudes. And we can think of the Beatitudes as an announcement that Jesus is making. In the verses immediately preceding the Beatitudes, Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. It is here, he said. It is among you, and you can step into it. Heaven is invading earth in an unprecedented way. God's redemptive power and reign is breaking into our broken world. That's basically a summary of the of, the, uh, of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of heaven at the beginning of his ministry as recorded in the four written accounts of Jesus' uh, life and teachings. And in Matthew's account, what immediately follows this announcement is Jesus' most famous sermon, beginning with the Beatitudes, which, as we discussed, uh, appear to be a continuation of his announcement of the kingdom of heaven. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus paints a profile of a person who is welcoming and embracing the kingdom of heaven. A person who is becoming a kingdom of heaven kind of person. This is what these eight characteristics are doing. They're, they're describing, they're painting a picture of the, the, the person, of what happens to a person as they begin to embrace the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he says. The very first sign that someone is welcoming the kingdom of heaven is that they have a recognition of their spiritual and moral poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. And this awareness of your spiritual poverty results in mourning over that poverty, as well as mourning over the spiritual poverty of the world around you. And Jesus says, you're blessed when you mourn in such a way, and you will be comforted. You will be comforted. And that mourning leads to a meekness, as opposed to a sense of moral superiority or pride. A meekness and humility, Jesus said, that, that, that kind of meekness and humility that actually undoes pride and arrogance and hubris. And that meekness, and he, and he says, and you shall for you shall inherit the earth. And that meekness creates in you a hunger and thirst for righteousness, for goodness, virtue. Not a hunger and thirst to be right, <laughs> uh, but as in, you know, being proven right, you know, as 
or being seen as a good person, but a hunger and thirst to actually be good, righteous, virtuous in actuality, even if no one else notices or even acknowledges your goodness and virtue. See the difference there? There's a lot, there are a lot of people who want to be seen as virtuous. It's almost trendy in our day. A lot of assertion of moral superiority. But the person embracing the kingdom of heaven recognizes and understands how very desperate and needy they are and will hunger and thirst for goodness and virtue, for righteousness, not so that others will notice and acknowledge it, but simply because that is what satisfies their soul, their hunger. There will be an inner goodness and virtue inside of them that satisfies them even if, even if it remains unnoticed and unacknowledged by anyone else. So, the signs of someone welcoming and embracing the kingdom of heaven are recognition of spiritual poverty, uh, a mourning over that poverty, or resulting humility and meekness, leading to a hunger and thirst for true goodness and righteousness. And when you combine all those things together, you begin to love mercy. You begin, you, you become a merciful and gracious person. All these are signs that you are welcoming the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of God is unfolding in you. Then Jesus said this, blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, now, now there's a part of me that thinks that if I was writing what I suspected might go down in history as my most famous sermon ever, one that would be discussed and studied thousands of years after I physically left the earth, and my goal was to paint a profile of someone who was embracing the kingdom of heaven, I would have put this one up front. I would have made this number one in the list. Now, blessed are the pure in heart. Because that's kind of square one, isn't it? A little bit? It, you know, it's, it's kind of like saying... It's kind of like saying, blessed are those who have good intentions, who, who, who don't have mixed motives. Their, their motives are pure. They mean well, right? I mean, I may not always do the right thing, but I usually mean well. My intentions are good, honorable. And that's, that's where you got to start, right? Which is why, in my very limited, imperfect thinking, this belongs at the beginning. But Jesus obviously disagrees according to jesus the first sign you are embracing the kingdom of heaven is a recognition of your spiritual poverty which means coming to the realization that even my intentions are often a mixed bag not entirely pure which you have to admit is true isn't it as much as we hate to admit it like you know when i asked jenny if i can get her a dish of ice cream from the kitchen I'm not asking because, you know, I'm actually thinking, you know, I bet Jenny would really appreciate a, a, a dish of ice cream right now. No, I'm asking because I'm thinking, I'd really like a dish of ice cream right now. And if I get one for myself and don't offer her one, well, that might not turn out too well for me. See, our intentions and motivations are often tainted with self-interest, aren't they, if we're honest. So... So there's then another part of me that wonders if, if given the, the previous five Beatitudes Jesus already mentioned, acknowledging our spiritual poverty, mourning over that poverty, let it form meekness and humility in me, generate a desire for true goodness and virtue, 
that leads to a quality of mercy being produced. Uh, another part of me wonders why this isn't the Beatitudes at all, actually. Being pure in heart. Given all these other character traits that leave us with an acute awareness of our brokenness and spiritual desperation, how am I now supposed to measure up or attain to a purity of heart? But see, that's just it. As I said at the beginning of this series, these are not commandments. These are not commandments or, or, or set of ideals that Jesus is saying that we must live up to. Rather, this is a description of what happens to somebody, what happens to you as you embrace the kingdom of heaven. And when you look at these passages in this way, they go from being frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism to liberating and life-giving affirmation. One of the amazing, glorious things that happens to you as, as you simply embrace the kingdom of heaven is that you become pure in heart, but not before, before you become poor in spirit, mourn over that poverty, become meek, earnestly hunger and thirst for true goodness, and develop a, a love for mercy. See, there is no shortcut to purity of heart. You'll never be able to become pure in heart until and unless those other things happen to you first. Now, as I said, I may think I'm pure in heart. I may think that my motives are pure. I may fully believe that my intention, intentions are good and pure. I may even be able to argue very convincingly that I have the very best and most honorable intentions. But here's an interesting thing about that. A person who is genuinely pure in heart, a person who is genuinely of, on, of honorable intentions, you will rarely, if ever, hear them trying to prove it through an argument. Right? They, they either don't need to because it's just often, it's just so obvious when someone is purely motivated, or, or what you will hear them say is something like this. You know what? I may have allowed my hubris or, or, or my personal interests. I may have allowed those things to cloud my motivation or my judgment or my intentions in that instance. Purity of heart. See, the pure in heart aren't perfect. They're just transparent. I think that's important to remember. They just know they can't hide anything from God or from other people a lot of times. So they stop trying to hide. A couple weeks ago, I showed you a couple pictures I took several years uh, back when Jenny and I were living in a condo across town. Uh, the pictures, um, pictures were taken sitting in our dining room looking out through our patio. Uh, this is the first picture, and it was taken during the morning hours when the sun was on the other side of the house, so it looks fairly clean. It looks like a pretty clean window here, right? Certainly not squeaky clean, but relatively cl cleaner than average, right? I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give it a what? Uh, a 7, right? <laughs> yeah, a 7. Um, and then I showed you a picture taken several hours later from that same spot, looking through the same window, but this time the sun was shining directly through the window. Mess. An embarrassing mess, an uncomfortable mess, maybe a little humbling, a mess that might implicate me as a not a very not not a very effective or motivated window washer, maybe a little lazy. 
a little lazy when it comes to cleaning in general, perhaps. Now, I can try to argue to the contrary, but there's that. There's that. That picture doesn't lie. I used those pictures to illustrate how often, you know, oftentimes we, do, we want to believe that we are pure in heart, but when the light of God's glorious perfection shines directly into us, our true condition is exposed. Now, we can hide from that light. We can stay in the dark. We can stay in the shadows and not let the light shine directly into us, not welcome or embrace the light. That is and always has been an option for us. But here's what Jesus said about this. Here's a very, very famous passage, probably the most famous passage in the entire Bible. Um, this is what Jesus says about it. For, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Uh, that is a very famous passage, but, but what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, what comes right after is not nearly as famous. This is the, that same verse continuing. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he had not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict, and here is where we see the application here. This is it. This is, this is like explaining everything that came before. Here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Our windows are filthy. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into it for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth, or we could perhaps say whoever welcomes and embraces the kingdom of heaven comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. In other words, God sees everything. He sees and knows everything already. Nothing is hidden from God. So, this is really all very, very good news because what these verses are saying is that God doesn't shine his light into your life to condemn you or to humiliate you or to shame you. He shines his light into your life to heal you, restore you, and transform you. But there is no way around it. If he shines his light through the window of your soul, it's not going to be pretty. You're going to see some spots, some stains, some things you've neglected. But the light is not there to condemn you. It's there to save you. His intention is not to leave you in that condition. His intention is to clean you and restore you, to make you pure and transparent, to make you an instrument through which his light and his glory beautifully shines. Now, I wish I had one more photo, uh, a photo of that same window from the same spot uh, at the very, you know, at the same time of day with the sh sun shining directly through it, but after I had it professionally cleaned. Unfortunately, I don't have that picture, but I do have a related illustration. A few weeks ago, I decided to clean the glass door of our shower ha after having not cleaned it for a long time. 
so that it had hard water stains and mineral deposits all over it. I mean, how many of you have attempted cleaning a shower door that hasn't been cleaned in a while, just, just caked with, with hard water and, and mineral deposits? I mean, the water supply in Santa Barbara being what it is, with super high mineral content, the hard water spots and stains just seem to become part of the glass itself. Like, it's one with the glass. And I, I and, and it seems virtually impossible to remove those things. I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I used products and solutions that were advertised as being effective, effective in just, just such situations. They were not. Uh, I used dangerous chemicals that were toxic to breathe. I worked for hours and it maybe got it maybe 50% better, which still left it looking like a hopeless, horrible mess. But then I had an epiphany. I went to my toolbox, and I got a razor blade scraper. It looks just like this. I, and, and, I, and I started scraping, keeping the surface wet and using a little bit of Dawn dish soap. I scraped every inch of the shower door, inside and out. And wouldn't you know, all those spots and hard water stains completely removed. The glass looking like it's perfectly brand new. And once I started using that little razor blade scraper, it actually went surprisingly fast. I, I did the whole thing in less than an hour once I started using that scraper. So there you go. You're welcome. Cleaning tip for the day. It, it really does work. But, but I honestly had tried, over the years, I had tried all kinds of products and methods over the years and have never found anything I anything that worked until I reached for something. Warning, cheesy Bible metaphor ahead, okay? Until I reached for something that was sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate even the dividing soul and spirit, mineral deposit and glass, hard water stain and shower door a reference to the passage in Hebrews that says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Are you allowing God's word, God's light to judge, to cleanse, to scrape clean your thoughts and attitude. I apologize for the cheesy Bible metaphor, but it actually works, right? I mean, you kind of get it. It's the light of God's word that is able to cleanse us, to purify us and remove all the stains and damage that has accumulated over the years through our neglect or, or are just not wanting to deal with the mess. Now, one more little application before I'm done with this metaphor, and I think pretty much everybody knows this. If you squeegee the glass door right after showering every day, before you even get out of the shower, it actually keeps those spots and stains from building up and becoming such an intolerable, hopeless mess. And that's why it's so important to spend just a few minutes every day in your Bible talking to Jesus, confessing your sins, allowing him to examine, to shine his light on your thoughts and your attitudes, and asking for him to cleanse and purify you. See, 
the, the result is that you become pure and spotless without blemish. You become, you become a vessel, a window through which other people can look and see the light of God. We've departed, we've moved away from the shower door metaphor at this point, okay? <laughs> Your life becomes a window through which God's light shines to the rest of the world. But here's the deal. When God's light shines through, it's not just a one-way window. So not only do other people see God's goodness and light through you, but now you yourself have a much clearer picture or vision of Him. You are able to see God much more clearly as you become more and more pure in heart. This is the blessing that's associated with this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When all the buildup of dirt and mud and sinful residue is scraped away, washed away, you will have a much clearer view of God, of his goodness and glory. Okay, and then Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. One of the signs of, of a person embracing the kingdom of heaven is that they become a peacemaker. Now, in the Hebrew language among the Jews, the word peace is a huge word. It doesn't just mean, you know, the cessation of war or the absence of strife. The Hebrew word is shalom, and it means complete and total soundness of mind and body, complete well-being, wholeness in every area of life, personal and relational, but also political, economic, cultural, in every aspect of, of life. So, what is the primary fundamental reason for the lack of peace in the world today? We could literally spend the next couple hours making a list of things that could be contributing to the unrest, hostility, and chaos in the world today. In a speech uh, he gave at Stanford University back in 1994, Václav Havel, then president of the Czech Republic, described the tumultuous world situation in those days, and he ended by saying this, given its fatal incorrigibility, Humanity probably will have to go through many more Rwandas and Chernobyls before it understands how unbelievably short-sighted a human being can be who has forgotten he is not God. Almost 30 years later seems like kind of a gross understatement, doesn't it? But the one who is embracing the kingdom of heaven is becoming a peacemaker, not just a peace lover, not just a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker, an ambassador of the Prince of Peace himself, who, who apart from him, this world will never really know peace, which is eye-opening given what Jesus says next. Blessed are those who are persecuted, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would someone who is a peacemaker, someone who is making peace, bringing peace to the world, why would they be persecuted? Perhaps it is fundamentally, perhaps because in reality, in our fallen state, human beings 
don't really want peace. They want to rule their own kingdom. They want to have their own way. And they are willing to go to war with every other kingdom, including the kingdom of God, in order to reign in their own kingdom, where they are king and the center of their existence. So, so in wrapping up today, um, let, let's just make this really practical. A sign that we are welcoming and embracing the kingdom of heaven is that we begin to recognize how spiritually poor we are. In embracing the light of God's kingdom, our sins, our weaknesses, our stains are exposed by the light, and we experience mourning. And that mourning produces sorrow, a humility, and a, and a meekness that generates in us a hunger and thirst for true goodness, for true virtue, righteousness. So, so, that, so that when we feel envious because someone has something we don't have, or when we feel slighted because someone received a compliment or received recognition we feel we should have gotten but didn't, or, or, or when we, feel we, we are offended because somebody doesn't give us the respect we feel we deserve, or when, when we're annoyed because it's obvious this other person thinks they are better than us when we clearly have more experience, more education, more talent, or just, you know, or just more whatever, you know. Or you feel resentful when somebody doesn't affirm us or value us the way we think they should. See, when we are welcoming and embracing the kingdom of heaven and find ourselves experiencing those kinds of thoughts and attitudes— Instead of dismissing them or brushing them off, we allow God's light, the light of God, to shine on those thoughts and attitudes and do its healing work, cleansing, cleansing us, making us pure. We embrace the light. We welcome the light. You know, there was a time when we would just dismiss all these feelings and actions as, as inconsequential or perhaps even justified. I mean, who wouldn't feel offended if somebody was clearly inferior, who was clearly inferior and, a, and subordinate, treated them disrespectfully? Who wouldn't feel offended? Who wouldn't maybe feel a little righteous indignation towards somebody far less deserving if they had received something in recognition or maybe a promotion, maybe a material blessing of some kind, when somebody else, perhaps, you know, yourself, is far more deserving? Who wouldn't feel a little envious when somebody else, when, when somebody else received credit attention, some blessing that you felt like you deserved. See, there's a time when we would justify such feelings and attitudes because they're just normal. They, they've been normalized by our culture. They, they, they're just the way the world works. Who would blame you? But as you embrace the kingdom of heaven, which is a different kingdom, and is invading our world. When you embrace the kingdom of heaven, you recognize your spiritual poverty and experience sorrow, and, and you mourn over your spiritual poverty, leaving you humble and meek and generating in you a hunger and thirst for what is truly good and virtuous. And this produces in you the character of grace and mercy resulting in a purity of heart so that in the end you become an instrument of peace, of shalom. So much so that you, you are even glad when, and rejoice when others mistreat you. You're not resentful. 
You're, you're glad when people demonize you and overlook you and, and even sometimes even subject you to violence because you know you're in good company. You know you're in good company, as Jesus said. And you know that you possess the kingdom of heaven, which brings you great comfort. And you are promised the earth as your inheritance. And your longing for goodness and virtue and justice will be satisfied. While you are shown great mercy. And your vision of God himself is finally and forever unobstructed. Because you are a child of God. And the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. I want to read, uh, just in closing, in fact, worship team, you can come up. I just want to read, I did, I, it's a lengthy passage of scripture. It'll take me two or three minutes to read. And it's too much, was too much put up on the screen. Um, but this is from the brother of Jesus. Uh, and I want you to notice how, what I'm going to read here how powerfully it parallels the Beatitudes that we just looked at. Um, Caroline, could you go to maybe the title slide for me, please? Yeah, thank you. So this is what James, brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And of course, I'm like, I am. Uh, you know, and most people are like, uh, he, oh yeah, that's, that's me. Wise and understanding? Yeah, right here, everybody, you know. James says, who is wise and understanding? Let him not talk about it. Let him not brag about it. Let him not boast and, and you know, make outwards display. He says, let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth, such hiding, you know, in the shadows, hiding from the light, such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving. It's peace-loving. Considerate. It's submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. One, two more paragraphs. What causes the fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. It's all about you, that you may spend it on what you get on your pleasures. It's all about you. You adulterous people, don't you understand that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Mourn over your brokenness. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Father, these are, are not the easiest words for us to hear and receive. It's like a bright light shining into some corners of our, of our lives that we often don't want to face. There's, and there's so many things about, about our condition that are painful to face. But Lord, your light, your loving, gracious light is not there to shame us or to make us feel guilty or to humiliate us. It's, it's there to heal us. So help us, Heavenly Father. Please have mercy on us and help us to not recoil from your light, but actually to take these words to heart and see where we might need to make some, some corrections in our thoughts and in our attitudes, allowing the double-edged sword of your word to pierce right down and expose where we are not as maybe as, as purely motivated or as, as um, ha, ha, we may not have as good as intentions as we'd like to believe and like others to believe. That we are often very selfishly motivated. Even in the things that we sometimes do with, in, 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 an, in a posture of goodness or generosity is often just selfish motive more selfishly motivated so father thank you so much for your grace your forgiveness that you extend to us so freely that you love us even though our windows are filthy you love us so much you sent jesus to die on the cross to pay it's by his blood that we are cleansed that all those stains are removed by his blood. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the penalty for our sin and for giving us the possibility, the potential of a pure heart, right standing with you, so that the end of our life can be even better than what came before. Such an awesome God. We're so grateful to you in Jesus' name.